Today, we are discussing the five major ways the comic book industry has changed in the over 30 years that I have been working in this business. Yes, over three decades worth of evolution and change in, in, in regards to the way comics are made, the way they are consumed, the way they are discussed. What are the five major ways that comic books have changed. I am all over it. I have seen it firsthand. Some of them may surprise you. We cover all of it on today's brand new Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. This is the journey that you have chosen to take with me that, that, that carries comic books throughout the culture. Since I was a kid, I have been consumed by comic books. I have chron- chronicled this since the very first episode, seven years old, pulling comic books off the spinner racks. And really, this gives us a, a, a really great prism with which to look at today's particular episode, which is going to focus heavily on what has changed. If I listed from when I you know, was seven years old, the changes would just be staggering. But I am choosing to share with you today ways that the comics industry, the the industry that makes comic books, that creates comic books, that creates comic book superheroes or fantasy figures that, that maybe you have encountered on, you know, Amazon via Invincible or The Boys or AMC with The Walking Dead or Disney Plus with all of its myriad Marvel shows or some of the HBO Max DC Comics shows. Netflix has Sandman. All of this, all of these are born from comic books. They were born by comic book creators who put pen and pencil to paper to pad and created stories and storytelling that were so compelling that they've stood the test of time and now live on digital platforms, you know, in movie theaters, as, as video games. You know, the entire spectrum of comic books that I existed with as a seven-year-old has taken on an all-new meaning. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. I've been a professional for now 37 years. And so I wanted to cover how the comics industry, the five biggest comic book kind of changes in this interest in this industry since I became a professional. Because it's fun to watch things evolve and change and really I really wanted to look at some of the biggest uh, changes that affect the way I am making comic books today the way that I am making comics the way that you are experiencing comics and and so much has changed so much really has changed and and, and so much of the changes are altering the way that the comic books are I think received in in you know, you're gonna have to just kind of take this journey with me and, and, and follow me as I as I share with you today on our five ways that comic books have changed in the past thirty years. That 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 is the moniker, and hopefully, you know, I will share with you from my eyes as a publisher, as a writer, as an artist, as a creator, uh, as a guy that had a comic book studio. You know, I have seen this industry from every, really every point of view. 
And so I can come at it with all this different experience. That's really what it is. It's just experience. And I want to share it with you today. Uh, Some of these, you know, I'm I'm looking at the list right now and debating, you know, I just randomly selected it. So I'm, 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 I I listed, really, I listed six. Am I going to go six or am I going to stick with five? I think the biggest thing that I am going to start with is that did not exist when I broke into the business. And let's just go back. I broke into the business in 1987. That's when I got hired. I got hired down at the uh, Oakland uh, Convention Center for the very first WonderCon. I have shared with you a gentleman named Mark Grunewald was the editor out on behalf of Marvel looking for new talent. And, uh, you know, hey, if you're a fellow, you know, professional who got hired through a talent search, more power to you. Um, we are brothers in arms, sisters in arms, comrades in arms, and it's it's fun. It's it's fun to get discovered on the road, and I've chronicled that in all manner of different uh, podcasts. So I won't go over it again. I go into, I go into it in, in pretty much pretty big detail, but it was very exciting to walk into a convention, and with all my hopes and fears and trepidations, and then walk out a professional. And I did get paid work within a week. Within a one week. Uh, Mark Grunewald was true to his word. There is a Marvel Universe Book of the Undead. It came out in 1987. I drew, not not Book of the Undead, Book of the Dead, Book of the Dead. And uh, again, Marvel Universe handbooks were a big deal. It gave you like a drawing of of different, you know, give you a shot of the character and then facts and figures about that character. I drew the Zodiac. The Zodiac was dead. I drew... All the characters of the Zodiac, Sagittarius, Aries, um, Pisces, it's, uh, it's, it, it, was, it was fun. Uh, Joseph Rubenstein, a very accomplished, one of the great inkers of the Bronze Age, inked me up. So I was able to get my work out there in, in, uh, in the last days of my favorite editor-in-chief's uh, reign, Jim Shooter. I've also mentioned him ad nauseum, and uh, he was the, the editor-in-chief when I got hired. He was who was Mark Grunewald's boss, and he was editor-in-chief when my work saw print in the Marvel Universe Book of the Dead. And there's was, so Jim Shooter and Tom DeFalco, the brief group editor period. Then there was Bob Harris, Casada, Alonzo, CB, yeah, seven. I have been through seven editor-in-chiefs at Marvel Comics, and there have been people who've been through, you know, more than I have. I... I love being kind of an old guy, but I am by, by no means the oldest guy in this business. And it, it's great to see so many of our, uh, you know, renowned veterans of the business still still making appearances. Maybe it's just once a year, but guys like John Ramey, the senior, guys like Joe Staten, um, you know, at least they're there still. They're there still. The, the, the Silver Age group of creators is slowly you know, they're, they're passing because, I mean, these guys have seen a lot. They're old, um, just like, you know, old age will take you. Eventually the body wears down, mine will wear down. Um, and this has been a heck of a year for losing greats. I mean, in the same calendar year, we lost Neil Adams and George Perez. And, and they are two of like the blockbuster names. I mean, that's like, that's like Tom Cruise and Matthew McConaughey. I mean, they're like big marquee stellar big draws for the comics industry and 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 they left in the same cal really within within weeks of each other so 
the guys that are still around, I celebrate them. Steranko, Steranko is out there. He's a peer, a contemporary of Neil Adams of, of that era. But I mean, we 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 just celebrate these guys if they're coming through your town, if they're if they're if they're going to a convention, going to a comic store. Try and go see them. Thank them. Thank them for what what they gave. This this podcast first foremost always celebrates the work of comic book creators, the imaginations. The, the opportunities that they took. When, when, when Jim Steranko took over uh, Nick Fury, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he put an indelible mark on it. He, he, he made it his own, like, cool, hip spy book. He incorporated all manner of lettering and logos, titles on pages, uh, very, very, especially for the time, wild page designs, big figures, great action, just a, a fantastic... Fantastic artist all around, embellisher, but he he did not rest on his laurels. He wanted you to know that he was there. He strutted. He was great. Uh, Captain America, same thing. He took over Captain America and he did, he did an absolute bang-up job. Just really exciting. A, a book, obviously, that had some pedigree with Kirby and that big shadow, but Stranko went in there and just unapologetically just owned it. He's still with us. If you get the chance and you can see Steranko, thank him. See his work. Check out his work. I, I mentioned Steranko, Jim Steranko, but most people just call him by Steranko. He actually likes that. Um, I, I, yes, I've spoken and visited and enjoyed the company of Jim Steranko. He, uh, I mentioned him a great deal in the podcast about Raiders of the Lost Ark because you need to know that he was integral. I was hoping that they would cover part of his story when they were doing the Light and Magic uh documentary on Disney Plus uh, because he was specifically hired by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to do the matte paintings, the the spot illustrations that were the inspiration for furthering the script, giving the visual giving kind of the visual cues for the movie. He was Raiders of the Lost Ark's, you know, Ralph McQuarrie. So anyway, the 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 thing about being around as long as I have, uh when I broke in in 1987, this is in the wake of Dark Knight, in the wake of Watchmen, they tra- they fundamentally transformed the comic book industry. They introduced more mature themes as being wildly wildly mainstream acceptable. Uh, there was another level of sex and violence that was celebrated. Uh, they they kind of are seen if you yeah, there's so many different history sites, history books that say this is when comics went dark and they they didn't they weren't as fun and I, and I, and and I can tell you like I just know how much Todd McFarlane for instance one of the biggest you know names of the last 30 years how how when he took on Spider-Man he and writing and drawing he wanted to go to a more mature you know a, a, a more a darker a more violent a more gritty and he did his amazing Spider-Man is a little lighter and bouncier and then you know being responsible for all of the story he was really applying darker lines, darker themes. I mean, the whole book got a little, or, or depending on where you were sitting, a, a lot darker. And, and the fans loved it. The fans ate it up. No one said, oh man, Spider-Man's getting dark. It's it's kind of, I've, I've said this multiple times, it's what made Deadpool almost necessary for me because that jokey Spider-Man had been lost. Now he was grim and gritty Spider-Man. And I'm like, well... The Spider-Man that I grew up with that was drawn by Ross Andrew and, and written by Len Wein and Jerry Conway. And uh, he he was a funny jokester, smartass, set himself apart 
from Cap and Iron Man. And again, in the MCU, everyone tells a joke now. Everyone's funny. Cap's funny, was funny. Iron Man was funny. Thor is now funny. You know, everyone was funny. I think the only guy who wasn't funny at this point was Chadwick Boseman's portrayal of Black Panther. And sadly, we won't be getting any more of that. But at least he didn't, you know, Ant-Man's funny. Obviously, Deadpool's funny. Um, Everybody's kind of now... A, a, a bit of a wiseacre, as my dad would say, a wiseacre. I think wiseacre sounds a little more like bougie than than wise ass. So let's 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 go with wiseacre. So what I'm kind of painting the picture of is this this industry that's decided it can go darker. I've talked about the Dark Knight extensively about the format change, and what immediately followed, given that format change, was that uh, books like uh, featuring. Green Lantern, the long, I'm sorry, Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters, the Longbow Hunters by Mike Grell was immediately to follow. It did great because people just looked at that format as something that was going to give them something different. Oh, it's the Dark Knight format. It was called the Dark Knight format. I, I, I cover this on the podcast that I cover Dark Knight, that working retail. I worked retail almost the entirety of 1986. And uh, the Dark Knight format, it was called the Dark Knight format. Blackhawks came out in the Dark Knight format. Um, other publishers started to, you know, adopt the dark, the Dark Knight format because it was immediately known as being something more mature. So the format of comics was changing. The, the 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 maturity of the comics was changing. It was like R-rated stuff was cool. Marvel kept again expanding X Men very very aggressively. Again. That's been covered in another podcast as well. I welcome you to go through the library. I I mean, I have talked a lot. I have talked extensively with great, uh, you know, enthusiasm about how when Marvel realized, hey, maybe instead of making X-Men spinoff books, we can just publish more X-Men, put the same effort that we would into creating a monthly with X-Men characters in it spinning off from the major X-Men. We can take those teams, rotate them, and give you six X-Men books a month instead of four, maybe eight X-Men. And I'm talking the flagship, Uncanny X-Men, before they split it into two and made it X-Men and Uncanny X-Men. So this this was the temperature of the time. That's the world that I, you know, was, was hired into. DC Comics was post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, this big, giant, mega crossover that radically changed everything for them, restarted uh, books like The Flash, uh, gave all sorts of new opportunities to some some of the older characters George Perez rebooted uh Wonder Woman some other Marvel talent like like uh Butch slash Jackson guys who I covered here a couple times most recently in the X Factor episode he went on to do a really good version of Flash a really well thought out smart version of Flash written by a big indie guy named Mike Barron so I'm just trying to set the table because what I'm really getting at and then I get hired, and, and and then I'm operating from Southern California, working in the X-Men office. Jim Lee is working in the X-Men office, operating out of his San Diego studios. Todd McFarlane is drawing Spider-Man first in Canada, then in, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Mark Silvestri was drawing Wolverine from Malibu, California. Jim Valentino was, was doing Guardians of the Galaxy from Orange County. Eric Larson was in the Bay Area, San Francisco, doing Spider-Man. Wolves Portacio was also in San Diego. I mean, I think I've covered all these guys. We were working independently as independent contractors. None of us had had a con, had had a had a uh, had a contract, and and I guess 
that's the, the, the big deal was that nowadays, and it started, it was the dominion of the 2000s, is we've got to lock this talent up. We're going to give contracts. And there was competing contracts. And the media would cover so-and-so signed a Marvel exclusive. So-and-so signed a DC exclusive. So-and-so, you know, Dave Finch was a big, he's a big asset for Top Cow. He did a book called Ascension, Ascension for them. He did Cyberforce. He did a Ripclaw spinoff. It was when he was kind of finding his style, finding his groove. Excellent artist out the gate. Really talented guy. Very ambitious with um, all of the stylistic kind of leanings. And just like with anybody, you, you were able to see all of his influences. He wore them on his sleeve. Travis Charest, Mark Silvestri, to name just a few. But he was really Mooka, Brahm. Brahm is a fantasy painter, but... He exited Top Cow Image Comics and went to Marvel where he drew for pretty much the next seven, eight years. And he did uh, he did New Avengers. He did Ultimate X-Men. He did The Ultimatum, a big giant crossover featuring the Ultimate books. He, he did Moon Knight. He made Moon Knight super hot. Uh, and again, it was all based on really the application of his style and his lines. And one day, he went to D.C. He went to D.C. to do Batman. And it was announced, I think, 20, 2009, 2010. It was a big deal because he had become so synonymous with Marvel Comics. Most fans over that period that he was drawing for Marvel didn't know his top cow work. They just knew that he was the guy that was drawing Wolverine books and Captain America and Spider-Man books, part of the Avengers. He was, uh, and, and again, Moon Knight, X-Men, Ultimate X-Men for quite some time. So when he crossed the street, that was a big deal. His contract was up. He chose to then sign with DC to become exclusive to them. Because then DC could say, we took that guy. We took that guy. We took Dave Finch. We, he's not exclusive. He's exclusive to us now. The whole crossing of the street. Robert Kirkman was on my show. He was on, a, there's an episode with Robert. Uh, I think it's our 50th episode. Robert came on. We had a lengthy chat. He tells you, you know, that he was a contract player. Uh, Brian Bendis was a contract player. Mark Miller was a contract player. A lot of writers were signed up to contracts because of the amount of work that they could do, four to five comics a month. And Marvel felt like, well, if we're putting you in the spotlight, then you're going to work just for us. So it's almost just, just as much as if as it was beneficial for the creator, it was beneficial for the label, for the publisher, because then they could say, well, if Mark Miller is blowing up, writing Ultimates, writing this 12-issue Spider-Man Maxi series with Terry Dodson. He's doing Old Man Logan, a really seminal, gigantic Wolverine series. He's he's drawing our massive company crossover Civil War. Well, then he can't go also and do Superman and Batman and essentially com compete against us. So our investment in him is exclusive to us, and we 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 reap the dividends. We reap the rewards. That's how Marvel's looking at it. So. The talent wars were a big deal. Marvel really engaged in a ton of exclusives, and DC would, you know, go back and forth. They didn't have as many exclusives, but I remember when Jeff Loeb of Dark Victory of Batman Long Halloween, he had uh, done Superman for quite some time with Ed McGinnis. I worked with Jeff alongside Jeff at, at, at Awesome Comics. We had a blast. We made some really fun comics. He had always kind of been dancing with DC in, in a more prestigious manner than he had with Marvel. 
he had done some, you know, he had done cable and X-Men. That's how I get to know him. I, I really enjoyed what he was doing with cable. I told him at a convention how much I enjoyed cable and the supporting cast that he had built out during his run. And he was like, oh, man, that, you know, he was excited to hear it. But after Awesome, he went exclusive with DC. He became a primary DC deliverer until such time as Marvel, you know, made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And then in the mid-2000s, Jeff shifted. He had done Superman, Batman for DC. He had done Superman. He had done the aforementioned Batman Dark Victory, Batman Long, Long Halloween, and then boom. Now he's doing Mar- He's at Marvel. He's doing Red Hulk. He's doing Ultimates 3. He's doing... Uh, uh, Death of Captain America miniseries. He's doing a new version of the Ultimate X-Men with Art Adams. I mean, he was a busy, busy bee. Red Hulk blew up. People loved it. Great visual, great stories. Jeff absolutely could write for artists like nobody's business. He knew exactly what fans wanted to see and knew that when he had a talent that could deliver it, he would 100% call upon that talent to do just that. Big images, big splashy images, big big three-quarter page shots the the all the tenants of kind of the image style the anchor anchoring the page with a giant visual he was all into it and he blew up for marvel he absolutely blew up for marvel and prior to that he was just a dc exclusive so this exclusive these exclusive wars tying people up even now i know that there are guys at marvel who are exclusive they're you know now nowadays they're given carve outs like they want to keep artist X and so artist X really wants to go out and be independent and, and, and kind of dance in the independent realm and, 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 and do something creator owned. And so they now pre-negotiate, well, you can have six, eight, four issues away from your Marvel obligations, but we have to know exactly what it is. It has to be named and identified. And then you go and you do that and you come back and there's this understanding and it's happening with increasing uh, velocity now that the uh, exclusives on both ends DC has far less I think because of the situation with Warner Brothers that honestly you guys I don't I don't talk about it because I don't want to be a pylon but even today prior to coming on here I mean there's just always new um, and crazy developments going over at Warner Brothers as this new ownership uh, kind of figures it all out with it, it, it's down to money. It's carrying date. It's uh, carrying debt. It's what they can't afford to to promote. What they can't afford. There's there's all all sorts of crazy stories in the major trade publications today. It was that that really Warner Brothers because of the debt that they owe right now, and they're trying to take that off the books. They really only have enough money to release two movies, which is um, the new Olivia Wilde movie. Uh, something darlings and then black adam those are the fo- focus of their ad campaign ad campaigns marketing supports and trust me when you go well that doesn't sound like much no throwing a premiere for a black adam movie is a million dollar endeavor you're flying in your talent you're putting up your talent you're blocking off the street you're you're putting all the carpet out you're doing the giant step and repeats you're doing the giant almost carnival type rides atmospheres um big giant statues i mean these things are giant events you're getting you know you're 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 renting the theaters it is a you're, you're catering the event you're having an after party there's a ton of expense involved in this and that's not to mention your tv ad buys 
your streaming ad buys, your internet ad buys, your social media ad buys, um, then the, the, the junkets, putting on the junkets, renting the rooms, the halls, um, putting up the press, bringing them out, uh, having the videographers video this stuff. I mean, there's tons and tons of costs. So, so there's a logistic aspect to this. But DC Comics, as a result, is trying to just kind of qualify its existence and, and go quietly, you know, and not make any noise. So they are certainly not caring. I mean, this is a workforce that, that had a giant, you know, layoff 18, 19 months ago. So they're trying to stabilize. But the exclusives are much fewer and far between at DC than they are at Marvel. But regardless, the exclusive wars and getting an upfront, you know, all of your work negotiated up front, perhaps a signing bonus. Those those are a fact. I know guys who've had signing bonuses. None of that was available. Jim and I were the first guys that we were aware of that got the signing bonuses. I covered this extensively in the Heroes Reborn four-part, one of my biggest uh, podcasts because it just... I, 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 I shared so much information and people just uh, apparently clamored for that stuff and the inside juice and all the stuff that I had sat on for 20 years. Um, in that, I, I talk about the $350,000 signing bonuses that both Jim Lee and I received. And I'm going to tell you, I, I still can remember getting, like, getting on the plane to fly home and, and I kept opening up my briefcase to see if that check was there. Uh, it was, you know, seated underneath the, the seat in front of me, not in the overhead, because I couldn't believe it. I'm like an athlete. Jim and I are like, wow, this is what happens to athletes. They get signing bonuses. So exclusive wars and tying up talent and, and, and contractually obligating them to do a set amount of work for you exclusively was not something that was happening during my time. We were all freelancers. We were free. We were independent contractors. Jim didn't have a contract. Neither did I, neither did Todd. There was just an understanding. We're going to do this amount of work. You're going to pay us. We're going to hand it in. We were independent contractors. We were work for hire. Those are the contracts. I mean, those are the agreements that we signed. We vouchered for our page rates, for our the, the amount of money they paid us per job to pencil, to ink, to write, to script. But nobody, nobody I even knew of. We, we you, you, you never saw anybody with a contract. Now they are nowhere near where they were at the heyday when there was a greater maybe competition to secure people and to, and to wear that as a badge. And, and they actually, I think, also invested in it as, as, as an aspect that they could use to uh, woo, you know, talent. We're going to give you this exclusive contract with perks and whatever else it entails. Those did not exist. And in the best of my knowledge, uh, for the most part, you know, the guys that I grew up loving and, and enjoying didn't have contracts either. They may have had project-to-project -project agreements as lawyers were starting to creep in in the 80s and say, hey, well, if, if, if this guy's going to do this, I need this written in paper that he's going to get this much, he's going to do this many issues. That, that's a contract. That's definitely a contract. But that contract is for the life of the project. It's not saying we have you for six years and you have to do this amount of work in six years. Because again, if I'm signing you and you have to do 20 books a year from me, and that's a you know minimum, and that's six you know six years. I mean, those commitments are significant, and 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 they you know give again the talent a place to hang their hat, and they give the publisher a place to foster the name brand of this talent and put them on four to five comics and say, look, 
especially if only one of them works, you know, you got to buy this, you got to buy this. This guy's writing five other books from us. Check them all out. If you're liking this, what he's doing here, you're going to like what he's doing there. That's part of the benefit that they were experiencing giving people these exclusive contracts, which again is a big departure, something that happened about, I would say, 18, 17 years ago. So definitely within the realm of new, something new, a giant change that's happened since I have been in the business. One extra additive to the entire contract situation is that uh, had we been under contract, myself and Jim Lee and Todd, had we been under contracts, let's say they all started and were staggered six months, a year apart, we would have never been able to launch Image Comics because we would have been contractually obligated to do the work, you know, whatever that the contract would have entailed. So part of the contractual situation and why we're fortunate that we didn't have that is again, because it would have created this, this dilemma. There's no way again, now with the contracts that some of these guys have that they can just break. They can't just call up and go, Hey, I'm going to do this. They have to, in some cases, some of these guys have what's called a carve out carve outs to go do maybe a, a project here or there. I'm fairly certain that some of the guys Mark Miller is doing with his uh, Miller verse that, that uh, there's some DC talent. There's some Marvel talent. I believe they are subject to carve outs. Uh, well, we want to keep you happy artist, ABC, whatever. And, uh, and, and, and so, yes, we understand you want to follow your dreams and do this. And there's the potential given Mark's uh, great track record and getting stuff made with whether it's a film or on uh, now exclusively with Netflix. So, so they carve it out, they let them go, but they have to come back as soon as that deal is done, or maybe it's a six month window, an eight month window. I know for a fact, a very popular artist that, uh, who, whose work I was a huge fan of, uh, he in fact had a clause that was like 400 pages. It wasn't, it wasn't a time clause. It wasn't a, you're going to sign this for six years, five years, four years, this period. No, it was at work. It was like when he handed in his 400th page, uh, the, the, he was out of his contract. So the more he procrastinated, the more he was caught up in it. And, and, and trust me, at one point, this guy realized, man, I've got to turn on the afterburners and really, you know, get to work and finish this. Otherwise I'm never going to crawl out of this because at, at, you know, famous saying time passes, things change. Nobody says it better than Don Henley in that massively epic Eagles documentary, but time passes, things change. And, uh, suddenly you go, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Well, you've got a, you've got a page requirement and, and that page requirement has to be met or you're locked. And so again, had, had he done 400 pages in a year, that's a year contract. Had he done 400 pages in 18 months, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's tricky. I, I, We'll never know why certain people sign the deals that they do. It's not my, you know, it's none of my business to advocate one way or the other. I just have opinions. Now, I will tell you in the grand scheme of all this, a couple of guys, and they were guys, uh, male talents came to me in the last 10 years and asked my advice. And I was very open with what I would do. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you that neither of them followed my advice and both of them, I'll be honest, met, met a few speed bumps along the way. And, and, and I would even say one of them has even almost to the point of, has experienced a complete stall out and an absolute complete stall out. So it's really, 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 really crazy. Um, contracts. 
that they, they, they are a, a, a recent, you know, the 2000s entered this contract stage. And now you can see why. Now you can see why a bunch of guys going to get together, going to leave. They're going to, they're going to, you know, take off. No, 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 no. You've got to meet, meet X, Y, and Z. And, and, you know, again, when that happens, when that happens, then they huddle and they try very much to keep, you, you know, maybe they know, oh, this guy wants to leave. Well, now we've got to make them happier. So look, I can see where the contracts benefit both, you know, everybody. Uh, look, I sign contracts on licensing deals on, uh, obviously movie, television, all manner of different deals. Uh, th- these are literally, you know, work contracts to produce comic books. And, uh, it's a really, really interesting subject that I could probably, now that we're at the 31 minute mark of this podcast, probably continue going, but we're going to leave it right here. We're going to park it. And that is our first point in how things have changed. These, these amazing contracts, again, the pros, the cons, the whole, the, the entire, um, kind of scope of it. Moving along with the five ways comics have changed in the 37 years I've been in the business since I got hired. I'm going to go for a, let me see. Nah, I'll leave that one for later. I'm going to go straight to computer drawing, drawing on computer, technical, you know, illustrations. Uh, What I'm specifically speaking of is what began really as the Cintiqs. I don't know if some of you have ever seen them. There was um, Image Comics had a comic. We had ImageCon. We had ImageCon in 2012. And it was at the same Oakland Convention Center that I got hired by Mark Grunwald. So it was really sweet to be part of it. Uh, all of us sans Jim Lee, no Jim Lee, gathered. But it was Wills, Eric, Mark, Valentino, McFarland, myself. After dinner one night, and Kirkman and, and Eric Stevenson were there, we had a really amazing dinner we all gathered upstairs in Todd's room and he had brought his Cintiq with us and he showed me uh, the different um, lines and the things that he was inking and and uh, how he was how he was using the Cintiq to, to imitate his line that he gets on Bristol board and, and, and he really more than anyone has developed a style that I see reminds me of what I'm going to call the scraping. The scraping is when the crow quill gets dipped into the ink or the marker tip and depending on the tooth of your paper, and if you've drawn before, or if and if you haven't right now, like, what does he mean? The tooth. The tooth is is the is is the texture on on your paper. If is it rough? Is it smooth? Is it more smooth like glass? A lot of the sketch covers have, you know, over the years, I see guys going, I can't believe this company printed these on this glossy smooth. It's really hard to draw on. It is. Now I know some guys who swear by it. That's what they like. That they want that surface. I always went for a. Um, a, a, a rougher tooth, uh, more of a, you know, it's not quite sandpaper, but it has a little grit on it. It has a little, little grit, has a little resistance. That's what I came up using the paper that I got from DC and Marvel when I first broke in in 87, all the way through to like 90, 90, 91. Now I, again, I, I, I printed up 20,000, uh, sheets of 11 by 17 Bristol board that I will never at this point run out because <laughs> I'm not doing 20,000 pages, but, uh, people along the way, I remember, uh, you know, some people liked other studios or other, um, companies paper. I know people liked my paper that they, they, they thought it had a nice balance of tooth and people have offered to buy those sheets for me before, but yeah, the, the, the scraping is what occurs when the inked pin, you know, 
applies its finish on the board. I, I spoke in a recent podcast. I mentioned to you guys how much I admire the work that is done on the page, and I love the guys that are still doing it. And I know that Eric Larson again has 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 you know sized up his paper, and and he's doing even more work. So when you get those pages, there's even more detail. When you add several inches to the page, that that's a bigger canvas, and and he's filling it with the same amount of detail, rendering, cross hatching backgrounds but it's on a bigger scale these pages are huge just the other day on facebook he showed people this is what i these are the sizes i used to draw this is what i'm drawing on now and i mean it is it is like the other the new page can almost swallow up the old page it's that's these these two up sizes and again when you go back to the silver age of comic books in the early bronze age guys especially the golden age you'll see these two ups you'll see kirby drawing fantastic four the avengers x-men you'll you'll notice that those pages are much bigger um the ditko pages that he drew doctor strange and spider-man are much bigger so the the todd had his cintiq with him and, and i was like this cintiq they, they're called cintiqs with a c and uh, the key the 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 cintiq keek part of it is a q c-i-n-t-i-q i believe is the the brand name um, I've seen all manner of different artists use them. They're very cumbersome. They're they're very large, uh, and 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 they had all sorts of different programming options, kind of side components. Um, you, you you really, I was so shocked. Todd had his with him. He literally packed it up and and clearly, absolutely walked out on a plane and walked that off a plane or drove it from from Arizona at the time. I don't remember, but he showed me how he had developed his own brushes, his own tips. Uh, nib nib you know tips just like just like nib tips that you would get at the art store back at extreme we would all um i i revealed to my studio mates everybody at extreme i i I revealed the art store that i shopped at in fullerton and they would just going there is like you know if you're a toy collector and going to toys r us the all the different uh canvases you know the 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 paper that you could buy because you could buy it by the roll. You could have it cut up. You know, you know, uh, uh, made to order, custom within the store. All of the different inking tools, technical pens, and uh, we everybody kind of preferred different nibs. Traditional Hunt 102 is what I have seen the most amount of inkers use in the real application of tools on paper. You can duplicate those now through these systems. The Cintiq has evolved into Procreate. And Procreate, which I have on my iPad and I use to give corrections to my colorists. Not, I don't like to say corrections. Changes. Alterations. It's changes and alterations. I've used it since Procreate launched. And I see now that actual comic book coloring is done on Procreate. I can't believe iPads are coloring the comics that you see. Amazing painters. Amazing illustrators. I mean, forget the line art stuff. Because that's really what I'm talking about. But obviously, p- the painting applications. The amazing rendering and illustrations that you're able to do because the computers have just, and with all the updates and the software uh, advances, the, 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 the brushes, the tools, the, the fact that you can, you know, remove what you don't like and go back. I mean, step backwards, arrow backwards. I mean, it's not like back in the old days, if you put the wrong thing down on the actual physical canvas with your paint, that you'd be like, oh man, now I have to put a layer over this to conceal my mistake and then blend it with my new application once that you know the, the the concealing process is over i mean these computers and these guys who do them they're, they're amazing and and i have watched over especially in the last decade as procreate has become all the rage and seen people develop their own brushes i know dan frega of extreme studios he does 
uh, Black Flag now for himself. He has his own indie book. He has done storyboards for the last 20 years or more. Uh, he, he works with some of the big directors. He's done uh, all manner of music videos for Taylor Swift. He, he uh, did this new Rick Astley insurance commercial because he put, again, that he had done this. He's done uh, movies, the Transporter films. Dan is very well versed in, in, in storyboards. His storyboards are actually really beautiful pieces of art. He has taken to uh, developing certain ink nibs and brushes, custom customizing, which is what you can do if you can if you basically develop your own applications. And so I have seen these brushes turn into the closest thing I've ever seen to the scraping on a board. But it you know I still prefer the line art of a paper. It's just the way I'm trained. I envy, truly envy. The guys who are acing it, who are just just knocking it out of the park on these Procreate, on their iPads, on their Cintiqs, whatever programs you're using, uh, it's really impressive. The 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 thing I, you know, am so envious of is the way they can put uh, put you know different backgrounds and elements right into the panel by just grabbing something and pulling it into the page and applying it. You know pulling it from the photo gallery and cropping it and boom, there's a, you know, killer background or they then, you know, limit the opacity and then draw right over it. And I mean, it's, it's an amazing tool. There is, there is no way that, that we have not seen all these advances. Some of my favorite colors that I work with blow my mind with what they are able to do in the color, you know, realm and the color, uh, sphere of things. But the guys who are creating the line art, they lay a lot. And then there's guys who just use it to lay down blue lines. And they work the sizes and the cropping, and again they 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 they're able to move in and tighten up uh, uh, the procedure much quicker. And I'm still here scanning, printing out, drawing, scanning, printing out, blowing up, inking on a board. I'm a dinosaur, and I admit it. I'm not saying I'm not, but I'm a dinosaur with great admiration for these newfound technologies. This is not a get off my lawn situation. I am literally telling you the way the comic books have changed in a massive way over the last. 30 years and this is not in any way an insignificant change and I see guys now blending that the advancement of this is going beyond just developing brushes and create and, and, and duplicating lines that were you know previously established through uh through through you know croquil nibs the guy who is killing it the most for me is Jorge Jimenez who's been prominently mostly producing Batman for DC Comics the last several years. Especially in the pandemic, his stuff really blew up. He was doing Batman with James IV, and they were introducing Punchline and and all, all these other new characters. But there, there's a manga approach that he has to creating comics that I really admire to begin with. But I've seen textures. What what I, I've, I've talked in, in recent podcasts, I, again, at these art stores. There was one in... Uh, Whittier that I used to go to, and then they shut down and literally became a dentist. But they started as a as a architect store, a technical store, uh, for, you know, for, for for architects who would do all these technical drawings. And then they branched off into more art supplies. And through this, they 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 had the largest section I'd ever seen of what we've called uh, Zipatone. And Zipatone would be these different film sheets with all manner of different patterns, uh, really tight you know, lines right next to each other, dots, splatters, cross-hatching, um, you name it, duotone, or I'm sorry, duotone is a board that you would actually apply different chemicals to to bring out 
like built-in tones in the printing of the board. It was like another advancement of these uh, Zipatone. Zipatone was zip- different sheets. I used them on X-Force. I used them on New Mutants. I used patterns. There's one uh, scene, I forget, maybe it's X-Force 5 or 6. Maybe it's 6, maybe it's 4. Uh, Boom Boom and uh, Cannonball are in the kitchen with Feral, uh, I believe. And and uh, I used a kind of a flower texture pattern on, on like to make like a wallpaper pattern. I mean, Eric Larson still uh, subscribes to using the Zipatone. I mean, again, you, you, it's clear Zipatone comes in clear film sheets, but they're sheets and they're on a different layer. Just like when you are, uh, you know, untaping one, one side of your sticky has, has the adhesive. So you want to keep that, that one strip on it. But when you take that strip off and then you apply the adhesive, it's over. It's been applied. The Zipatone you would be a clear film and then you would place it over the area that you wanted. You would pencil around because again, it's clear you see through it. And then you would with an exacto knife or scissors, whichever worked for you, you would apply that. And I did it all over X-Force New Mutants and, and Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen was, was really one of the first people to see that I saw used it like in the most amazing fashion. He'd lay it down, then he'd put white out effects over it, make smoke effects on top of the textures, the dots. You'd have dots that are white dots against black. You'd have black dots against white. Again, you had cross-hatching patterns. You had really tight constricted lines. You had wider constricted lines. You had different like webbing uh, patterns. I mean, every pattern you've possibly ever imagined is on these Zipatone sheets. But that is now available like at a blink of an eye at a drop with the texture applications and choices that are that you have on procreate and what i have seen guys like jorge jimenez do where he takes the texture and he uses it to as a as a rendering tool and will use what would be a zipatone styled you know application that he can grab from a program or from a selection on procreate and then apply it to a figure and kind of put like these gray tones and it's fantastic. I, I, I'm so impressed. I can't even begin to tell you how much I'm impressed with all of these different um, tools. They're tools. They're digital tools that create these pages. I'm very, the only downside, the only single downside, and there's a downside, is that they are only digital art. When, when these guys are like, I'm going to make you a one of one, I'm very skeptical. Let's say your best intent is that you're going to make me a one-of-one. Then you die or you lose half your programs in a divorce. And then your wife says, I'm going to make a hundred of a hundred. A digital file is only a digital file no matter when you print it out. And when you print it out, no matter if you claim that it's a one-of-one, it is a print, period. You can call it a jaclay. You can zhuzh it up with a nice format. But my opinion will never change. And I've had these discussions in fine art groups. It is not original art. Original art has the ink on it. Even if I print out a blue line, which I do with all my covers and all my pages, and then I ink on top of the blue line, that ink is my own. If you spill water on that page, that ink will smear in a way because it is on top of the board. If you smear, uh, if you spill water on a print, it will dissipate in a completely different way because it has been, you know, a computer uh, kind of burned that onto the page via the printing process. But most of my pages have copious amounts of white out, white ink uh, covering my corrections, Along with my hatching, my my all my various tools, I may use a uh, a brush with actual India ink on the same page that I splatter it with white paint. On the same page that I use some really fine markers to apply figure, line art, and and rendering. So the original art is the original art. It is where the ink lands, 
And in case, again, separate subject, if there's a pencil page and an ink page, good. The two of them comprise a finished piece. But whatever was scanned and the comic was printed from is your original art. That is your original art. I know it's not a popular statement, but if Danny Mickey gets blue lines of John Romita Jr. and Danny Mickey inks that, and that is what is scanned and colored and put in the comic book, Danny Mickey's inks is the original art. That's my firm opinion. If that makes your head blow up right now and lava has smeared all over your walls, um, Liefeld said, it's my opinion. I've been doing this a long time, 37 years. So the only downside to digital, and there's so much upside, and you know, you can produce a lot faster with the backgrounds that you can scan in and grab and snag and the textures that you can immediately apply and all the, you know, steps you skip. I mean, there must be a year of my life with me scanning. And lately I'm gonna have to get a new scanner. The scanner is scanner is fighting me. It's, um, it's, it's just in the last three weeks, but I've been, you know, moving, you know, with my head on fire, I've been doing so much that, that I haven't been able to hit Amazon, click it, order it, then set it up because it's all time consuming. But, a year of my life at least of scanning, waiting, printing it out, drawing over the blue line, scanning that sketch, printing it out on an 11 by 17, oh, out of ink, got to restore the ink cartridges, get the blue line restored, then taking it to my board and actually drawing on it with ink. The fact that you can just boom, 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 do all these steps on the computer with these Procreate programs or Cintiq. And again, Todd has come the closest to creating the scrape. The other it's not a downside, but it's something that's happened in regards to the computer graphics and the digital art is one of the reasons I'm seeing less style and, and Jorge Jimenez is stylized. And that's what I like about him. I favor stylized art. You can put an Art Adams next to a John Byrne, next to a George Perez, next to a Jim Starlin, next to a Mike Mignola, next to a Bernie Wrightson, next to a Neil Adams, next to a Paul Smith, next to a Jack Kirby and a Jim Steranko. And they all look different to me. A lot of guys are drawing the same. I have to flip and look at the credits. I think I'm looking at one guy when I'm really looking at another. A lot of that is with Poser and these different programs that give you like basically mannequins that you can zoom in on. You can pose the mannequins. These are, I mean, literally 3D mannequins, then put them in panels, then draw over them is why so much of today's art from both Marvel and DC is blending together. These guys using these computer programs are using the same, for, for my purposes, cheat codes. And if you want anatomically correct, then that is your game. I still, again, have people who want to troll 90s art because of these stylistic applications. And yes, I do believe that the 90s artists took the styles that we liked, the diverse styles of the 70s and the 80s. And trust me, a Frank Miller drawing did not look anything like a John Byrne drawing, did not look anything like an Art Adams drawing, did not look anything like a Walt Simonson drawing. You want to talk stylized and stylized with panache. I mean, Walt Simonson has the most amazing style and he breaks all manner of rules and smaller heads, larger shoulders, bigger, broader chests, tiny waists. He's an amazing artist, but the style is what attracts me to him and makes him, his stuff just pop, just pop out to me. This new kind of age wants everything to be anatomically correct. And I, I, I do believe it, it really started, and I've covered it in another podcast, when Alex Ross was all the rage in the late 90s. I would, I've told you guys a fabled story. I don't know what episode it's on. Hopefully those of you who burned through it, you know it. Uh, I, I went undercover at San Diego Comic-Con in 2001. I went in 
Uh, I just changed my appearance. I didn't know if I could pull it off until I stood next to a dozen people, including Eric Larson, who did not recognize me. I stood right to the side of Eric Larson's page uh, table. I talked to him. I conversed with him. I watched others talk and converse with him. But mo most importantly, I stood next to the review tables at Marvel and DC, and I saw these guys go, we want realism. We don't want this image stuff. Truth, truth. We want realism. We don't want this image stuff. Come on. You know, draw more, you know, from life. Draw life. Give me life. And uh, I'll be honest, it was Mike Carlin, it was Joe Casada. Those two guys, at different times, I've heard them say that at their tables to the talents. And in, in advising them that they didn't want image styles, they want life, life, life. Life's great, life's great. Also, life is boring. I can, if I can get it from a photograph, why do I want you to draw it? Maybe you're going to apply a great texture, but literally... There are so many amazing photographers, and I have photographers in my family. I have photographers that are, are my friends that I admire greatly. But comics, for me, for me, remember, before you your head explodes, this is for me, for Rob, my tastes. I think that there's a couple guys that do the photorealism good, a couple, two, out of maybe like 20,000 that try it. But uh, I like stylistic stuff. I prefer it. Uh, imagine if there, if everyone in the cartoon world adhered to the realism, you wouldn't get the Simpsons, you wouldn't get Samurai Jack, you wouldn't get the Clone Wars, you wouldn't get all different manners of styles, and styles is where I live and breathe and what I prefer. And the thing about what's happening with these computer modules, I haven't seen uh, with, with the, these different programs, the Procreate, the Cintiqs, these guys who are using Poser and are, are using it, there's a sameness. Let's call it samey. It's samey. Samey's not bad. Uh, but maybe, maybe over time, samey will develop and sameness will become something more advanced. Brian Hitch himself started out as a John Byrne clone, then an Alan Davis clone, and will tell you that, that, that that's what he favored. That's what he was trying to do. I actually picked up comics I thought, I swore, were drawn by Alan Davis in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was turned out to be Brian Hitch. I knew that he was from Britain and that he had done like different... Um, of the Marvel British comics, but he also did She-Hulk. He also did all manner of different comics. He was everywhere, but he really looked like early John Byrne and then later, like the Excalibur era, Alan Davis. But when he did Ultimates, when he did the Authority and Ultimates, he started to pull away. And that's when I saw him apply some of his Alex Ross photorealism. He was clearly stunned, moved by Kingdom Come and by Marvel's, the two giant pillars of Alex Ross's you know, career, the big, his biggest accomplishments at that time. And I saw him apply those, but unlike Alex, Brian, I think is a more dramatic, uh, visceral storyteller. And he brought a lot of edge and a lot of violence. And I don't believe that ultimates looked anything like Alex Ross, but it had this new breadth of a, a realistic approach. And it was like, uh, in some instances, really the thing that Alex did so well was put the camera so low, these, these, these worms eye view. Joss Whedon loves the Avengers, has so many wor worms eye view, lower, where the camera is more on the ground looking up. I mean, so it's a very dramatic approach. Brian Hitch suddenly started applying that and to faces, to, to figures, and it was definitely a, an approach that I, I feel like Alex Ross had really introduced, but then that realism that Alex had, but Brian combined it with his own already dynamic comic book st style that he had been drawing, you know, uh, with for 13, 14 years, and it created this new style, this new Brian Hitch. So I do believe there are guys in the digital space right now who are using Poser. That entire story I just told you was to, to, to illustrate how Brian Hitch advanced his work from an Alan Davis clone, which he will say, and he has said publicly, he has said that on Twitter, to this amazing 
uh, more original approach because he, again, he combined different approaches and different styles to his own work and created this new, the Brian Hitch that now we've enjoyed on Ultimates, on Justice League, on Hawkman. And uh, so anyway, digital art, the Procreate, the Cintiqs, the computer uh, drawing programs are hugely, a huge departure from all of the, uh, um, you know, from all of the various approaches that I had experienced up till now. So there is, that is, that is our second. I, I hesitate to mention them, but really the first one I mentioned was the exclusive contracts. The second way comics have changed the most drastically uh, in the last 30 years is this computer drawing slash digital technology. Uh, I'm going to go to really quickly. Number four, internet groups. Obviously, how, how could it, you know, how could it exist if there was no internet? I, I tell, you know, my kids, I entered my first chat room when Heroes Reborn came out in 1996. I had been in comics by nine years. I had been in comics for nine years at that point, and I entered my first chat room. So for, for nine years, I didn't experience any sort of chat rooms. And for, you're going, what's a chat room? Well, you used to go on message boards uh, that, that were on different computer servers, and you would make a group or, or be part of a club or a group, and you would in, interact with the people who had your interest. You would find different interests, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, um, Lord of the Rings. X-Men, Marvel superheroes, DC superheroes, whatever. And people would have different chats. Oh, I like this. Oh, I don't like this. Well, that then, um, because I then got my own message boards and Rob Liefeld, you know, had his own message boards. Mark Miller had his own message boards. Brian Bendis, Warren Ellis had his own internet group. And we were all splintered and we all, you know, had our own groups. And I met so many amazing, I'm going to tell you right now, I have met hundreds of fantastic people online via the digital connections that took flight nine years into my career. And then Twitter and Facebook happened. And these groups became even more popular, more accessible, more shared, uh, easier to, 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 to convince someone to just jump on an existing platform that they already like and come to a group. I've told you guys, I am part of Edgar Rice Burroughs, the guy who created John Carter and Tarzan groups. I am part of a Battlestar Galactica group, a Six Million Dollar Man group, a fantasy group, a fantasy movie group. I am part of a Planet of the Apes group, a couple of them. I am, I am in four, no less than four John Byrne fan groups, okay? I am in an original art group. I also have my own Rob Liefeld group that I have on Facebook. So the groups, the chats, the Twitter, the Instagram, all of the DMs, the messaging, you can reach out, you can talk, you can interact. We can share. It is what drove wizard and pulverized it into the curb. It curb stomped the digital media curb stomped wizard. Okay. I thoroughly enjoy saying that. Yes. I've now let my inner wizard rage, uh, out with you guys in a recent episode. And now I can tell you it is the digital media, the digital groups, the digital sharing that completely wiped them out. They couldn't keep up. You're not going to wait 30 days for them to give you a scoop when that scoop literally just happened in real time. And now you're supposed to get excited about them to put it, put it on a printed page that Ben Affleck's going to be Batman. They were already dead by the time that happened, by the way. But that's the kind of thing that would happen. You'd get a Twitter feed, boom. You know, Ryan Reynolds cast as Deadpool in Wolverine Origins. Well, boom. By the time they share it with you, you've already read it for 30 days. You don't need to turn to page 15 of the Wizard Magazine that's coming out two months later to tell you something that you've already seen. And they've got photos as well online. So why do you need Wizard? Wizard Wizard was relevant when it was the chat room, when it convinced you that you needed it, that you needed it to, to you know, exist. So many of you guys have re responded to that Wizard episode 
and and have shared with me how it was your Bible. You learned so much. You were in a small town. This was your connection to the comic book universe. I get it. I totally get it. Who in the hell would hold that against you? Of course, you had no idea at all that a group of, you know, uh, 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 nebishy, uh, bitter children who couldn't get work in comics and found great pleasure in diminishing those who actually made the comics. You'd had no idea that your book was being curated by, you know, basically uh, 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 <laughs> a revenge of the nerds like fraternity. You know, I mean, that, that that's what these guys were. And when you saw them and you saw, you know, the, the for, first of all, you saw their skepticism. Then you saw how much they enjoyed being the arbiters and trying desperately to be the gatekeepers. Well, their gate crashed and demolished and, and completely imploded because they could no longer do that. You can't talk shit about someone if they can talk to you in an instant and say, hey, I want to address this. And you see filmmakers do it all the time. As I'm doing this right now, James Wan, director of Aquaman, Aquaman 2, has addressed the fact that Aquaman got moved to Christmas of February 23. He came on basically said, hey, we have more time to make this great. The CGI is even going to be better. We didn't want to rush the project. So while you're reading the headline and you're reacting to it, he goes on social media and tells you, hey, man, I got your back. This is going to be great. I'm going to make this great. Momoa says the same thing. These guys immediately address any concerns that they may perceive that you have or that you really have and have expressed in real time. And in real time, they react to you and say, hey, no, this is great. This is going to be great. This is going to work out. You know, this is the beauty of the, the, the internet the internet existence that we now live in, the internet groups, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So many of you guys are on TikTok. Uh, you know, but again, it all started with these internet groups. And I went into a couple of them bravely and they were, you know, maybe didn't like everything that I liked, didn't like me, but then I was polite with them and I showed them how you could have some decent discourse. I have not told anyone off uh, in my knowledge ever in a room because I wanted to show them that we can agree we can be disagreeable in a friendly way when so many, you know, there are some people who are like, I want to, you know, I hope you burn life. that's nice. Okay. I can't afford to ever say that it would be a terrible example. I couldn't live with myself if I did. And also I'm, I'm a public figure and that would not look good on, 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 you know, kind of my imprint on life. It would be a bad karmic move. But you know, when people come in, let's say I have a Facebook group. And you come in, you join, and the first thing you do is make mockery or, you know, uh, ridicule me. I'm just going to remove you. You're not going to get a warning. I'm not going to talk to you. I think there's a lot of people just like me. I just then block you, remove you, and move on. It's like, what, what, that's my living room. And there's all these living rooms that, that opened up across the comic book universe. And you name it, and your favorite is probably online somewhere. They're drawing pictures for you, showing you painting techniques on Instagram or TikTok. They've got Facebook groups where they're interacting with you or they're talking to you directly on Twitter and or in messages. I mean, it's so great. And this is definitely a domain that was not existing for me until 1996. It really got more popular. And again, as, as, as news sites like Newsarama and Comic Book Resources started, you know, sharing their stories as they, again, because they were coming for printed magazines as well, being part of the you know, delivery service of news much faster than you can get it 30, 30 days later, 60 days later between two staples. They started their own message boards. So every item that they would talk about, you know, Newsbreak, Robert Kirkman launches new zombie book in 2002, 2003, whatever, you're then able to say, hey, I'm looking forward to this. Hey, this looks interesting to me. Hey, I like zombies. 
That's what CBR, Newsarama, all the different comic book news sites introduced. But again, it was greater than that. And if you went on Usenet or um, CompuServe, all these different uh, platforms had comic book groups. And I mean, look, obviously there's soap opera groups. I mean, you guys have been on, I haven't said it, but obviously Reddit exists as well. My kids, <laughs> two of my sons are on Laker Reddit groups 24-7. They want to debate every single move, every single off-season decision, you know, who's getting traded, and they, they keep me up to date, and it's so funny, you know, as we're, you know, out to eat, and my oldest son of 22 will be like, ah, oh, Dad, you know, in the, in, the, <laughs> in the new Reddit group, they said this, this, and this about Patrick Beverly or Russell Westbrook. Oh, my gosh. So again, internet groups, number three on our list that we're going over. So we've got number one, exclusive contracts. Number two, computer slash digital uh, illustration. And look, there was a computer comic that came out in 1985. It was called Shatter, but it printed like pixely. Okay. So I do want to go back and go, yes, that was the dawn of it. That is seen as the first comic book printed on a computer, but it is no way in no way, shape, or form what I am talking about in having all of these digital tools in terms of digital brushes, ink, pencils, charcoal. I mean, everything that you can buy at, at the store, which I am so excited because I went to reload on my physical you know, media supplies the other day, and I was so excited. Again, I think I mentioned this on another episode. It was full. The store was full. People are going back to school. I, I assumed it was students, but they were buying paint, and they were buying ink and paper and drawing pads and uh, all manner of different brushes. The brush aisle is still a giant wall of, of brush selections. And that's exciting. But there's all, all of that is contained in these apps. Procreate is an app. It's fantastic. So, And then, obviously, internet groups slash social media sharing is something that is the biggest change in comics. And, again, I can go in and tell you about my new comic. I can give you a sliver of a new picture or panel or an idea or a concept or a character sketch in these groups. They are useful in me and any creator, any creator selling our work to you. We want our work to be seen. We want our work to be experienced. We want to excite you. And all of these internet groups, starting with the, you know, better applications in regards to uploading graphics to any of these different rooms that I talked about, talked about in the early, the late nineties, early two thousands. And now Facebook, Instagram, TikTok you know, Twitter, it is a great platform, not only to discuss, but to share and to sell. I mean, where will we be without internet platform platforms in the pandemic as stores could not open because all the different governors and the, and the government said, you can't, you have to close. It's too scary. There's the unknown. We don't know what's going on. People were innovators. Combo people went to the internet. They went to Facebook groups. They went to Instagram groups. I, I did the same. I saw people doing it. I'm like, wow, I can sell my shares on my new Snake Eyes comics. I can put those and share those with people all across the continent. And we have sent our comics everywhere. I have sent comics to Paris. I have sent comics to Italy. I have sent comics to Germany, to Canada. I mean, all over the United States. Uh, it, 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 the internet kept stores open. I know many stores, you said, Rob, but for selling online, I would have closed my doors. I would have not been able to make it. And remember, this is something I'm, that is very, very personal to me. I took it upon myself to draw a picture a day for 45 days, raised, you know, almost $300,000 for comic book stores. You, 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 when you bought the sketch from me, when you won the bid, you sent it to that store. I never saw the money. The money went to their PayPal address, to their Stripe account. 
and 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 that was in this in this period where everyone was scrambling. So it, this is something I know very personally, very personably, and I am so excited to have experienced so many of these stores. A couple of these stores that I went to this last summer, uh, Bedrock, Bedrock City, and and a couple of these others. They're like we were participants in your program. We you you had money allocated to us. I think Daryl Morey, the general manager now of the Philadelphia 76ers, but he was the Houston Rockets at the time, was the guy that bought the auction and sent the money to Bedrock City. So again, that happens because of the digital platforms that we have, because those auctions that I shared with you took place on Facebook and they took place on Instagram and you were alerted to it by Twitter. So wow, digital groups are great for sharing, selling, discussion, and have absolutely been a part of changing comic books, period. So we have two more to go. These are going to go a little quicker than the others. The others were always going to be a little more time consuming, but I'm going to get right down to it. You guys have talked, some of you, I, I've talked to you about, you know, when I've shown pictures of my own personal spinner rack online and people are like, why are they not in bags and boards? And I'm like, Ugh, I will never put bags and boards on my spinner rack. I know friends who do it, uh, other peer, peers in my business that do it. Uh, my comics are curated. I have all of Frank Miller's Daredevil on one aisle right now. I have all of um, the, my favorite X-Men comics by John Byrne. I have a run of the invaders that I truly loved, the, the World War II Marvel heroes, and I have the Marvel team-ups that I really enjoyed from the late 70s. Those used to be also Kirby's Fantastic Four run and a, and a, and a giant late 70s, early 80s Fantastic... Uh, I'm sorry, Kirby's Captain America run in the 70s. Sorry, the 1976 Captain America run, as well as the late 70s Fantastic Four work by that Marv Wolfman did, that Len Wein did, that George Perez drew, that that uh, that John Byrne drew. So I, I'm, all, I'm always changing it up, but I don't put bags and boards because that's not how we bought comics. You would go to the liquor store or to the 7-Eleven and the bo- the, some of the comics were crumpled. They were picked over. People had handled them, put them back. Condition was not something that was even considered, and a bag and a board was not something that I encountered until 1981, and I'd been reading comics since 1975. And when I ordered a comic, if you go back to like 1978, 77, and you can order comics through the mail, I ordered Nova, a Marvel superhero, and Godzilla and Logan's Run comics through the mail, and when they were delivered to me, they were delivered in a paper bag, crumpled and shitty and folded into my uh, our, our family's mailbox out on the street. And so I'd be like, oh, well, I, I'm really not crazy about this crease in the middle of my Godzilla number one. But uh, and I had seen ads. I had seen ads in Starlog magazine, a big sci-fi magazine at the time that I've talked about here in Fangoria, uh, same publisher, but it was a horror magazine. I, I'd seen it in the back of Marvel Comics, you know, so I was like, wow, I, I didn't get Logan's run at my store, the liquor store and the 7-Eleven. And I didn't see anybody. You told them the food market. Nobody had it. So I went to the you know, ordering online, uh, ordering through the mail and sending my couple of bucks through the mail, my check. And I couldn't believe it. The first time again, I got Logan's run and Godzilla and Nova and they were crumpled to shit, but I loved them. I poured over them. You know, I've talked again, how my mom would put her drink, her, her, it looked like a scotch glass, but it had, you know, soda, soda in it, Coca-Cola. And it put rings on my favorite issue of the Avengers, Avengers 161. I was able to, I was not able to replace that for years. It was damaged. The air, the, the, the air dried on the wet circle left by the cold glass and the condensation. And it, it, it had a crusty little circle in the middle of it. So, I mean, what am I telling you this about? Because condition was not something that I was concerned of 
for seven years collecting comics, six years collecting comics. Then I discovered bags and boards and I should take better care of these. And of course, all of my books now from my youth are bagged and boarded. Some I've told you my favorites I put in Mylar. I love the crunch of that Mylar, but the biggest change in the last 37 years in comics for me, number four is CGI slabs grading. And I love them. Don't think for one minute I'm here to throw them under the bus. I have so many slabs. Guys, I love it. I'm not a grading number crazy person like some of you. I have to have nine eights on everything. No, I have a five, five Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, X-Men number one. I love it. I love it. It's signed by Stan. I had Stan sign it myself. I bought it off a retailer in pretty bad shape. I had, I had it pressed, juiced up, sent it in, got a 5.5. Five. I'm so happy it exists. It's in a nice protected glass case. I don't want to ruin it. Or plastic case. Plastic case. Sorry, not glass. <laughs> but I have all manner. I have the first appearance of Wolverine, the Giant Says X-Men, my favorite John Byrne uh, issues, um, Fantastic Four, Inhuman, Luke Cage, Power Man. I have so many of my Bronze Age favorites. All wonderfully settled and sequestered away with CGI, I'm sorry, CG slee, CGC um, slabs. And uh, I love them. I love getting them back in the mail. I, I love submitting them. I love knowing that it's going to, you know, come with a mystery number because you really can't tell. You may think you have a 9-8, but you don't. But the numbering and the slabbing and the grading has taken over our business and you know it. You've seen it. Have you seen those lines for CGC at all the different conventions? I have had my own differences of opinion with CGC, and we have worked all those out over the last several years. Um, I am a great admirer of the, of those. I have yet to ever do a a uh, dedicated, I, I know it's been all the rage in the last three or four years, these C, uh, CGC signings where you go to their headquarters and you sign. I, I know that eventually I will do it. I just haven't done it as yet, but you know, it's become such a prominent part of what we do that when I'm on site, uh, a gentleman who works alongside of me, Dave Hong, I mean, he's like family to me. Dave is the best. He is a CGC witness, a facilitator, and he works really closely with them. He has a great relationship with them. You know, uh, we put acetate covers on a recent issue of Profit, and people wanted to know, would they be honored by CGC? We called them up personally. We got the answer. Yes, we printed those specifically to have acetate covers, not bootlegged you know, and put extra staples. My, my, my acetate profit comics have two staples. That's it. And cause we, we did that. We did that that way at the printer, but we also, because the acetate stuff, there was like acetate gate swirling with these bootleg editions. And we were able to contact CGC immediately. And they got right back to us because they love Dave. Dave is a trusted facilitator and witness for them. But when we go to sh shows in Chicago or San Antonio or Dallas or, you know, Arizona North Carolina, wherever I've been recently, Orlando, you know, people want to know, can I get this CGC? Can I get this CGC? When I do it online, is there a CGC option? It is so important for people to have their slabs and we can't on any level look down on that and see it as anything more than an upgrade from the Mylars that I'm putting on all my favorite X-Men comics. You know, like I said, all of my favorite X-Men's, Fantastic Four's, Justice Leagues and uh, Avengers comics are double bordered with those crispy you know, uh, the, 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 the crispy plastic covers. Cause I just love it. I don't, a, a regular bag isn't going to do. So this is just a, this is just an upgrade. It's just an upgrade to these sealed plastic slabs with their, with the number and people love it. 
I, I, I dare to say, and this will be the most controversial thing I've said in a long time, CGC may have turned the corner, I dare say, just shy of saving the comics industry. I think it, it kicked in a brand new appreciation for conditioning and making them more valuable as collectibles. And let's be honest, guys, the collectible part of the business is something you're not going to outrun. I've said it many times that when John Byrne was tearing it up from 1977 to 1980 on the X-Men, and then when George Perez was doing the Titans and Frank Miller was doing Daredevil all during the same period, I would buy multiple copies, two to three copies. I knew there was one I was going to have a dedicated reader copy. I wanted to flip through it and peruse it and go back to it. It would be my dedicated reader copy. Then I wanted one or two really Tony copies, nice copies that would be clean that I that I would, you know, have in nice condition because now condition was something that when I saw you can get something in a really crisp condition. I wanted that. We all do. You know, I'll take a wrinkled version of, of, of X-Men num, number one and, and, and be happy as it's a 5-5 five, because five, they're really hard to come by. But of course I'd want a nicer version. And, and when I'm pulling it off the rack, I want a, I want a nice copy. But I can't guarantee 9-8s in, in, in the finest of conditions. But we all kind of prefer that crispy version, that that really clean, minty, fresh version of whatever comic book we want. So the slab is just the ultimate representation of that because you know that between those two plastic slabs, is is as fine a condition of, as as you could have possibly hoped for or purchased. Okay, not hoped for because you're hoping for nine eights, but but you did it to you know cement the condition for all time. Because boy, trying to oh man, you need a really some skills and a really uh, sharp screwdriver to to manipulate those things over. I've seen it; they've been broken into in front of me so that they could be resubmitted. It's crazy. It's hairy. I'm surprised people don't stab themselves with a screwdriver as they're trying to finagle between those two closed slabs airtight. The conditioning, this this CGC movement, I don't mind it. I don't see it as greedy. I see it as just a, uh, another level of appreciating the condition, which applies to the collectible aspect. And the minute you've bought two copies of anything, you're in the collectible market. The minute you've gone and gotten that pack of cards, and then you go back and get another pack of cards... Uh, my buddy and I, we went in halvesies in 1977 when the Star Wars cards arrived, and we bought an entire box from the liquor store. They, they were holding one for us. They said they came in on certain days. They put one out for the public, and they had one for us, and we went home. And on the front lawn, on my front lawn, on like a 3 o'clock in the afternoon in, in late 1977, we started prying open those packs. And some we had doubles of, and we divvy them up, and we tried to each get a complete set. But, you know, obviously some of you had three, you had four stickers. So he'd take two, I'd take two Stormtrooper st stickers. He'd take one, I'd take one of the Sand People. I mean, and, and then the cards and beyond and therefore and whatnot, okay? Just unbelievable. You cannot take away the collectible aspect of our business. You may not like it, you may not participate in it, but it's a huge part and it's always been there. It's been there for at least the 40-some the years. Uh, since, I, I'll call it 1980. When condition immediately suddenly started to matter to me, but that still doesn't mean that I'm putting bags and boards on my spin rack. But CGC changed the game, maybe perhaps enhanced our business, saved it. I, I, I can hear arguments for both sides. I'm not here to make that today, but I absolutely will tell you that this process did not exist when I got into comics. And it is really in the last 15 years taken off and maybe in the last decade just added extra super nova, you know, fuel to the entire thing because when you see these lines, there are local shows here in Southern California 
and the owner is really good friends with CGC, and they know that the people that do these dedicated comic book shows locally uh, are, are hardcore collectors. CGC comes out and puts three tables out, and that line is all weekend long out the door, and you're like, wow, this isn't a small show in Orange County, but they have CGC taking, taking, taking submissions, 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 submissions. It is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It's not going out of style. CGC grading of book slabs are the number four most. It, uh, it's number four on my list. These are all kind of equal to me in regards to, wow, uh, they're game changers and they're the five biggest ways that comic books have changed since I've been in the business, 37 years. And what am I going to end with? I'm going to end with the most absolute obvious. I'm, I'm calling it the warm embrace. We're, we're, I'm calling it the warm embrace by the mainstream audience, the mainstream embrace, the mainstream embrace of comic books. I say it at the top of every show. I always run through it. You're probably like, oh my gosh, she's going to say streaming, Invincible, The Boys, Walking Dead, Disney Plus, HBO. Yep, I am because it's unlike anything. That leap from Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk in, the, in 1978 to 2008's Incredible Hulk movie or the 2004, you know, Eric Banya, it was a 2003, 2004 Eric Banya Hulk movie. It is a magnificent, gigantic leap. 78 to 2004, 78 to, 9, to 2008. I mean, Iron Man coming to life for the first time ever on screen in 2008, that same summer where they launched the, 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 the Marvel launched their two movies, the Incredible Hulk and the Iron Man franchise. And to see Infinity War, Endgame, these giant, movies sprawling across screen to go from Linda Carter, who I loved and I never missed on Saturday nights, on Wednesday nights, whenever it was airing because it bounced around networks as well. I've never missed Wonder Woman. I loved every Linda Carter, Wonder Woman adventure, the World War II ones, the modern day ones. But then to go to that, to the Gal Gadot 2017 live action film by Patty Jenkins is phenomenal. It, it, I mean, come on, that No Man's Land sequence, I am watching Wonder Woman become Wonder Woman, deflecting bullets, that slow-mo, that entire sequence. And you're like, what is going on here? I can't even imagine the leap that we've taken. But we're, it's here, and people love it. And I was moving my daughter into her college uh, dorm room, and dads with Fantastic Four shirts, with Spider-Man shirts, with Deadpool shirts were all over the campus. Moving day, you're going to get the entire family, kids, as we were going to the bookstores, we were in line in the Star Wars. Uh, I'm st- <laughs> I said Star Wars. In line in the Starbucks. In line in the Starbucks. You know, everybody's in line in the Starbucks on moving day and every day since as, as, as college is underway now. But they've got Batman shirts, Superman shirts. They've got Transformers shirts. They've got Star Wars shirts. They've got Invincible shirts. They've got Walking Dead, Negan shirts. I saw it all today. I saw it all across the campus it's not like it used to be. I grew up in 1985. And in 1985, the culture was on fire. It was on fire for Prince and Madonna and Michael Jackson with Thriller. It was on fire with Bruce Springsteen, with U2, with Duran Duran. It was a awesome age of rock and roll and pop music. Sports dynasties were being born. Joe, Joe Montana's uh, San Francisco 49ers reign was just beginning when I was a junior and a senior. You had Sh- Magic Showtime Lakers tearing up the NBA uh, across you know, sports and putting putting the Lakers into multiple championships across the years, winning five, you know, uh, across the 80s. These were relevant times. These aren't Little House in the Prairie covered wagon times I'm telling you about. These are, you know, 
the, the, the video games that, that, that were out at the time. I mean, you know, Dragon's Lair, Asteroids, Space Invaders. This is the kind of stuff that was just burning up. We didn't get to play. We didn't get to consoles yet. That would, you know, be a little way down the line. But boy, oh boy, wrestling was taking off. You know, Hulk Hogan from from the the, the wrestling on Saturday mornings to Rocky to Rocky Three with with Balboa, with with Sylvester Stallone. These are relevant times, but comic books were not embraced. They were not embraced. You, had, it was the age of still Super Friends, and again, a Wonder Woman show that had gone, that come and gone already. It was kind of, you know, didn't make it all the way through the eighties into the eighties. And Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk. Again, kind of the early 80s, say goodbye to these live-action superheroes. And we certainly, you know, the best we were going to hope for was going to come in 1989's Tim Burton's Batman, which I know is a sweet spot for so many of you, but wasn't anywhere close to what I had hoped for. And when I saw Ben Affleck as Batman move in that costume, he looked like a Frank Miller drawing come to life. It blew my mind. I still can't believe what we're given on a regular basis, and we should never, ever take it for granted. The fact that we get shows that I got a Hawkeye show that I thoroughly enjoyed, that I got a Moon Knight show that I may not have loved, but it was weird, and I appreciate that it exists. Uh, we're, we're getting all manner of crazy, great stuff. James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, and come on, I'm going I'm to say it. And Deadpool. MFN Deadpool. Tim Miller, David Leach, both delivered great movies. I saw Cable come to life. You haven't lived until you've seen your own character come to life with Cable, with Deadpool, with Domino, with Vanessa. The the mainstream embrace that 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 turns out for these movies that kiss a billion dollars now routinely is something that will never be lost on me and most certainly absolutely did not exist when I broke into comics. Comic books, it would be two years after I get hired. 1989's Batman hits the stream and storms the cineplexes and was huge. But again, had a great print song, had a beautiful cast, big stars, Jack Nicholson, Kim Basinger, Michael Keaton breaking through in this this amazing role. Just unbelievable, the mainstream embrace of all things superheroes and comic books. And that wraps it up for me because I talk about this all the time and I'll never stop talking about it because little Robbie Liefeld who wandered into the liquor store and got that wink from those guys who ran the liquor store and wandered back to the spinner rack and pulled copies of the champions and the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and the Justice Society of America and Nova and Spider-Woman and Machine Man and, and, and had just the best time absorbing those four color adventures on newsprint paper is blown away by the quality of the superheroes that we get. I mean, I stood up and cheered in different episodes, during different episodes of Robert Kirkman's Invincible series. I couldn't believe the the, the great combination of kind of East and West, the Eastern kind of manga approach to this Western kind of saga and, and amazing animation. I just, I absolutely love Invincible. And, and, and the fact that my oldest son who now that's almost two years ago was like, wow, dad, now I know why we have all these invincible comics around the house. <laughs> You're kind of like, well, I'm glad that it took moving pictures with voice actors to get you to completely come to my side and love this. But yes, you may have my phone books of invincible and enjoy them as much as I do, but not my signed copies. Those signed copies, they stay on the shelf that the Cory Walker, Robert Kirkman signed editions. No, no, no. You can't read those guys. Mainstream embrace of comics. It'll never, ever get old to me. And, and you know, if you were born, you know, if you're 15 years old, you've never known anything but the mainstream embrace of these. So it's different and it, and it, and it, and it feels different and it plays differently. But that is the five game changers 
the five ways comic books have changed in over the last 30 years. I hope that you enjoyed uh, this observation as much as I enjoyed making it and sharing with you guys. So at the end of every episode of Observations, I read your reviews, your comments, your messages about the show. Uh, we are so thankful that you guys listen, that you guys share, and most, I mean, really importantly, that you that when you when you leave these uh, reviews and messages for us, it helps us stand out on the platform. When you give us five stars, when you write a review, a positive review, it helps us stand out. As you can imagine, this show is <laughs> now attracting trolls who want to, uh, 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 you know, bomb the show, but, but you guys are so great in, in helping us stand out. And I appreciate it so much today. I'm going to read, I read them at the end of every show. As, as I said, if you, if you leave it, I will read it and share it at the end of every show today is from Jude and Jude writes, if you could Rob, if you could indulge me for a few moments of your time, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for the work that you've done over the decades. I was 11 when image comics launched and I was blown away by the work that was coming out. Six months ago, I got heavily back into comic books after having no collections for nearly two decades. Your work, especially the work on profit, has become my gateway into collecting again. The work that everyone has done on all of the different profit series are so inspiring. I am blown away by the Brandon Graham stories as well. Um, the stories that you have been able to fashion have been a tremendous influ influence on me. Uh, I just wanted to thank you and everyone else that you have worked with at Extreme over the years, it has meant so much to me. Jude, thank you. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listen, uh, leaving that amazing uh, comment uh, on, on our webpage, on our, on our observations page. And I just, I'm so thankful uh, for, for, for all of you guys who tune in, who have enjoyed my career over the years, who enjoy listening to me speak about my personal history with comics. And uh, again, you help us stand out on the platform, and I thank you so much because this show grows because of your word of mouth. And I can't, I just love when I meet you guys and you um, immediately move to talking about the show. And, and, and uh, I'm just so glad that this show has offered something for each and every one of you. So thank you very much, all of you. I am all over social media. If you've listened to this episode, I talked about internet groups and sharing. And of course, I am on Twitter Full name at Robert Liefeld. I have a blue check. It's really me. On Instagram, I am Rob Liefeld. Two different handles. Twitter, Robert Liefeld. The name on my birth certificate. And Instagram, Rob Liefeld. The name that I go by, Rob Liefeld. Both have blue checks. Seek me out on Instagram and Twitter. Robert Liefeld at Twitter. Rob Liefeld on Instagram. We have a observations with Rob Liefeld Facebook page on Facebook. Like it. Um, leave a comment. I will find it. I will find you. I will respond. I have a Facebook page group called Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. It is administered by myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. I say this so that you will know that if you are clicked in or approved by either of us, you are at the right place. If you submit your, as you do with all the groups you want to join, and we click pretty much everybody in, uh, the crazy people who make crazy comments, we then kind of quietly just diminish them later, remove them. But Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group is our group. It's growing. We, we share all manner of news, stories. There's, there's drawing contests, um, discussions of anything that I've ever been involved with in my entire career. Obviously, you can we, we enjoy discussing all the different versions of Cable that came after I introduced him or Deadpool or any of these characters or Avengers because I did so much work on the Avengers and Captain America and all the other different uh, uh, great projects and bucket lists that I've been able to scratch off my my career achievement list like G.I. Joe and Snake Eyes recently. 
So definitely check out the Rob Liefeld and Extreme group on Facebook. And again, Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, or myself will be the per- people who um, approve your membership and get you in. We're the administrators. I have taken to Whatnot, an incredible app where we can sell signed comics and signed pops and toys. It's much more advanced than anything I've ever done before, whether it was a Facebook Live or an Instagram Live. And many of you, because I am live on the air, sometimes up to four, four hours rambling, and you guys have been so generous in enjoying the show. And many of you who follow both say it's like an extension of this very podcast. I'm, I'm maybe a little too candid on whatnot, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and scale it back, or but I'm not sure that I'll be successful at that. But whatnot is an app, and you can find just about anything under the sun uh, on sale on that app. It's um, lot, basically a live auction app, and I hope to see you there. I do maybe one, two shows regularly and uh, uh, per week, and I'd love to check for you guys to check it out. Whatnot is the name of the app. At the end of every episode, I encourage you to... Indulge yourself in, 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 in a manner of comfort food that feeds your soul, whether that's a great comic book, whether it's a great trade paperback, a hardcover. Get one of those big, giant, I have a couple of them, like, like uh, the, the omnibuses or the absolute editions that D- DC just excelled at putting out, especially in the mid-2000s. Uh, uh, my absolute authority, my absolute Frank Millers are just essential. My absolute Neil Adams, which I have a giant Neil Adams sketch in. I was fortunate enough. It just comforts me now that Neil is gone. Watch a great movie, great streaming. There's always so much fun stuff, so much of what, what we've already discussed. And uh, eat some fun food. Have a cupcake, have ice cream, have gelato, have a bag of Doritos, Cheetos. Get a double-double from In-N-Out. Get a Whataburger because you guys in Texas, that's all you live for is your Whataburgers, and I love it. Get, get a taco, get nachos, get a pizza. Just, you know, there's, there's a time and place for a cheat meal, and there's a time and place for you to get away and just indulge in, in stuff that you like that inspires you that helps you escape because comic books have always and will always be my escape from reality. You think now that I'm in an empty nest with all my kids gone that I'm not escaping regularly? You know, I got three empty bedrooms. So I am telling you that I am filling my time with comic books I love, books that I love, novels, shows, and I encourage you to do the same because you need to feel, feel, um, feel and fuel your emotional self, your physical self, your mental self, and uh, your spiritual self, and, and I'm just always going to be rooting for you, cheering you on, and hoping that uh, that you get a get 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 a chance to kick back in that beanbag, in that recliner, in that sofa chair, and just exhale, take a deep breath. Football season's coming. Maybe it's watching football 24/7. I, I that that may do it for you. It it definitely gives me a kick as well. So guys, I'm rooting for you. I'm cheering for you. Hang out. Hang in there. Take care. Swing back around and see me. I'll be here next time waiting for you because we will most certainly, absolutely talk again real soon. (laughs) 